Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Mike Pershawn. I teach English at McEwen University in the great white north of Canada. And today is the first episode of a new season of Triple Bladed Sword, which really just means that I'm switching over from course to course. So up until now, uh, I've been releasing podcast episodes of my Intro to Film Narrative course, and we're switching over now to a course called Narrative Across Media. It's one of our introductory English courses. It's brand spanking new. And the way that I teach it is to look at the literature of the apocalypse through the novel Station Eleven, and then I cluster a bunch of other narratives around it. And unlike the episodes up until now, which have looked primarily at film, which is just one of the modes of engagement from Linda Hutchins' theory of adaptation, that's the watch aspect of read, watch, and play, these upcoming episodes are really going to look across the board. We're going to be we're going to be looking at multiple blades as it were, the triple blades of science fiction, of fantasy, a little bit of horror. There's going to be reading, there's going to be watching, and there's going to be playing. So buckle up. Here we go. Here's episode 1 of season 2 of Triple Bladed Sword. I want to begin this first episode with a story of how this course came to be what it is. Not the course narrative across media, which uh, you know is a course that many of our instructors at McEwen teach, but rather how did this particular version of this course come to be? Uh, why are we reading Station Eleven? Why are we reading any of the things that we're reading? Why will I have you watching Contagion uh, very early on? And uh, the answer is that I was, you know, walking down the halls at McEwen and a, and a colleague of mine, one of our creative writing profs, Jacqueline Baker, uh, said, you've got to read this. And she pretty much shoved Station Eleven into my hands. And I looked at the cover. And if you've seen the North American cover, it, uh, it's a starry sky. And then uh, beneath that, there's this grassy field and a stone wall, and then these tents, which look to me an awful lot like, I don't know, yurts. Um, they look like the sort of tents you stay in on a yoga retreat. And they were glowing from within. There really wasn't anything about this cover that screamed what I normally do. My specialization as an academic, but also my interest as a reader, are the genres of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And this cover didn't say any of those things. Did not speak... It didn't speak science fiction, it didn't speak fantasy, it didn't speak horror to me. But I know that Jackie and I share some interests in terms of those genres. We're both big horror fans. And, and, and I said, well, I don't know. And she said, trust me. And because of that shared interest and, you know, knowing that we have liked a lot of the same stuff over the years, she says, trust me, I'm going to trust her. So I, I read it. And it, I didn't even get through the first section of the book. And you'll note, if you've flipped through it, that the book is organized into these really huge chapters. They're, they're longer than, I think, what we would normally think of as a, as a chapter length in a novel. And that's the other thing about this cover, by the way, is that, that what stands out is that it's Station Eleven, a novel. And today, all I want to do is judge this book by its cover, because that's what I did. 
I started by judging this book by its cover. I don't want to get too far into what was inside the book because I want to discuss why we read to some degree. I want to, I want to just talk about that, that first moment where we come into contact with a book. I want us to imagine ourselves in an airport and we're going to be stuck on a plane that has no movies and somehow miraculously you forgot to charge your phone or your iPad or whatever device would have given you the ability to watch movies in flight. So you've got to get a book. It's just, just I have to set up this whole thing where it's like, you don't get to watch movies because if you have the option, you're probably going to take it. Um, you have to, you have to read a book in this scenario and you're in an airport where they have a bookstore and airport bookstores are always filled with books that are supposed to grab your attention. Uh, I don't know if uh, Station Eleven has ever been out on the front, uh, you know, tables at a at a at an airport bookstore, but I know that I've seen it in airport bookstores a number of times. And I want you to just stop for a moment and ask yourself this question: If you were standing in an airport, looking at this cover, this cover with, you know, the starry sky and the yurts and the stone wall and the grass, would you pick it up? Would it grab your attention from across the airport? I remember getting fooled many times by Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series. Those covers were so compelling. They spoke to me every time. I am not the target audience for that that series. But boy, I'll tell you, they're marketing strategies seem to speak to me as a reader in terms of what those covers looked like. I would be in an airport and, and there would be a new uh, Twilight book out and I would always get, I would always, I was always fooled because I didn't really know the author's name for a while. I didn't realize, you know, Stephanie Meyer was synonymous with that. And I'd pick them up and I'd be like, oh, it's another one of those. Um, Cause again, I'm not the, I'm not the target audience, but would I have picked up station 11 without my colleagues shoving it into my hands? This is the question. We're told when we're young, don't judge a book by its cover. And yet we do. I own a number of books simply because of their covers. And sometimes those covers are misleading. Sometimes those covers are exactly what's inside the book to the point where you get a spoiler. Uh, But this cover, as it turns out, has nothing to do with the book. Nothing. I I can tell you that in advance. There is no scene like this one. There is no scene like this one. There's, there's a way in which I'm sure this, once you've started reading it, you'll be like, wait, 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 maybe. But no, there's no scene with a stone wall and the grass and these yurty tents. These very clean, very pristine, they look like they've been washed recently, tents. So, you know, I look at a cover... Do I want to read this book? I don't think I'd have picked it up. I mean, the, the title is is compelling. Station Eleven sounds science fictiony, and as it turns out, it is that aspect of the novel anyway. But would I have picked it up? And I have to admit that I wouldn't have. You know, for my students, would you have picked this book up if you weren't forced to read it for this course, just based on the cover? Would it be a book you picked up? One of the other things we want to note about this book is where would you find it if it was in a bookstore? Like when you go and pick something up in a library bookstore, uh, or sorry, an airport bookstore, they tend not to have 
you know, as, as many sections as you'd find in a full-sized Barnes and Noble or Chapters or whatever, you know, bookstore is near your place. Um, this, this gets housed in the literature section at our local Chapters Indigo. Literature, that catch-all section of the bookstore where everything seems to be housed, but not books that are specifically science fiction, fantasy, or horror. They get their own ghettos somewhere else in the, in the bookstore. Westerns get their own ghettos. Uh, romance novels get their own ghetto. And what do I mean by ghetto? They get their own little section that has a list. They tell you what it is. This is the label for this section. This is science fiction. This is fantasy. This is romance. This is whatever it might be. Literature or fiction. It's called fiction at, the, at our chapters, but I know what that means. Fiction means literature. It means a literary novel. It means a literary book. It means these books are more serious, potentially, or they're taken more seriously than books that I'll find somewhere else in the bookstore. And so there again, would you, you know, when you go to the bookstore, if you go to the bookstore, where do you go to hunt? What, and even if you don't go to the bookstore, imagine that you do. What's your genre? What's your go-to narrative genre? When you go on Netflix, what is it you're seeking? They don't even have a section for comedy, as it turns out. They call it humor, but it's like it's all comic strips, really. There's not a lot of prose in there. Um, but, you know, fictional comedies don't really even have a section at the bookstore. These are, these are things that are of interest to me. This is how we come into contact with books the first time. What is it that I like to read? What do I want to get into? You know, we have expectations based upon these things. But the other thing that's interesting to me about the cover of Station Eleven is that it tells us it's a novel, as though we might, you know, confuse it for something else. Station Eleven, a novel. And I'm like, I don't think I'd have thought this was anything else. But I find a lot of the books in the fiction section let you know it's a novel. What's a novel? What do we mean when we talk about a novel? People say novel and they don't necessarily know, is that really what you're talking about? I teach ancient literature in, compar in a course on comparative literature here uh, at, at McEwen every now and again. And my students will refer to the Epic of Gilgamesh as a novel. And I'm like, no, it's not a novel because the novel wasn't invented yet. You know, what is a novel? Novel, as the Broadview Pocket Glossary of Literary Terms defines it, is an extended work of fiction, fiction written in prose. So we know it won't be poetry, and we know that it's made up. That's what fiction means, right? It's made up. Um, and some of the the definitions for a novel will also stress that it's realistic. It's realistic. Novels are realistic. And we'll, we're going to interrogate that later on. As an extended narrative, says the Glossary of Literary Terms. A Glossary of Labor Literary Terms by Abrams and Harpum. And as an extended narrative, the novel is distinguished from the short story as its magnitude permits four things. It's distinguished from the short story because it does some things that short stories don't do. Too often, people think that like short stories are just small versions of novels, or novels are expanded versions of short stories, and to some degree, there's a little bit of truth to that, but they really are different animals. And what does a novel do that a short story can't? Well, it has a greater variety of characters. You can have more voices in the book. A greater complication of plot or plots. 
And we're going to talk about what that word means because I think increasingly people don't really know what they mean by plot. I think they, 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 they think it has something to do with the events in the story and that's sort of true. Um, but we, we really want to know what a plot is as we talk about that. An ampler development of milieu. What do we mean by this? Well, the, the setting. That we can we can find out more about the setting. Like Edgar Allan Poe's A Telltale Heart, which is a short story, doesn't give us any sense of where we are. We don't know. We know we're probably in a house, maybe a, a, a garret room, like an apartment, but we don't know for sure. The book or the the short story never really clarifies that for us. So, but a novel often does. A novel often tells us the setting and it gives us this ampler development of that setting. And then finally, a more sustained exploration of character and motives than do the shorter, more concentrated modes. So we're going to get a sustained, uh, not only do we get a greater variety of characters, but we get to find out more about those characters. And I want to just take a moment to stress something that's driven me nuts for years which is that uh, movies get made from novels, but of course they always have to cut them down because as it turns out, movies, when they're two hours long, and sometimes even when they're three, is really a short form of narrative. It's not a long form of narrative. It's a short form. There's, it's, it's far more focused. It, it, you take a look at what happens to a novel when it gets turned into a movie. There's lots of stuff that gets excised. If you turn it into a TV series, you have enough room to keep more of it in there. Um, but people are always like, no, oh, there wasn't enough character development. And I'm like, they had two hours. Come on, give, give me a break. Give me a break. Uh, sometimes if they focus just on character development, they can pull that off. But movies aren't not, they aren't moving novels. We want to keep that in mind. Uh, as we go through this course, because again, this is narrative across media. We're going to be learning about multiple forms, but right now we're just focused on a book. We're focused on the first mode of engagement that we're going to be talking about this semester, um, based on uh, the theory of adaptation by Linda Hutchin. Three modes of engagement that she talks about. We're just going to talk about one today. What's that mode? Telling. Telling. When I tell you a story, there are other ways to engage with stories, and we're going to talk about those in upcoming lectures. In the telling mode, says Linda Hutchin, in the telling mode, in narrative literature, like Station Eleven, for example, our engagement begins in the realm of imagination. So that's the th one, you know, one of the things that we know about a book is that it ha we look at words and they form pictures in our heads, which is absolutely amazing. And I think we all ought to just stop for a moment and marvel at the miracle that the author of Station Eleven, Emily St. John Mandel, began with a blank page. That I could start with a blank page and then I could write some things down and I could tell you a story with symbols on a blank page. It would no longer be blank at that point, but I can make you dream effectively, a collective dream, a shared dream, by writing something down or reading it out loud to you. If I tell you a story, the, you're almost compelled to imagine it. It's very hard not to. It's very hard to just sort of sit back and go like, no, this isn't going to impact on my surface. I am going to resist this completely. When we, we are, as Jonathan Gottschall says, storytelling animals. We love stories so much that we, we do it in our sleep through dream. And when we're very small, we're read stories. 
and we imagine them, right? So this engagement, the telling engagement, begins in the realm of imagination, whether someone is reading to us or we are reading with our, our own eyes or with our ears, you know, with an audiobook, which is simultaneously controlled by the selected directing words of the text. Let's stop on that for a moment. Simultaneous. So our imagination is controlled by the selected, directed words of the text. So often we read very quickly and we don't really pay attention to word choice. And you're going to need to pay attention to word choice, especially in the first section of Station Eleven, because we're going we're gonna to compare it and contrast it with some other narratives. We're going to be taking a look at a film, which, of course, it's a different form of media, so th there are some big differences there. But we're also going to take a look at the opening section of Stephen King's The Stand in an upcoming lecture. And if you don't own a copy of The Stand, that's totally okay. Um, if you're not one of my students and you don't have access to our e-reserve system, then what I recommend is go on Amazon and read the preview because that will have the first chapter, the prologue. So you read that and you can, you can keep up with us. Um, but word choice dictates to some degree what we imagine and how we imagine it. We'll talk more about that in upcoming uh, lectures. But I just want to start thinking about these things, that we are, our imagination is controlled by the selected, directing words of the text, not simply because they tell us the story, but they shape the way that that story is imagined. That is unconstrained, uh, sorry, directing words of the text and liberated, liberated, that is unconstrained by the limits of the visual or the oral unconstrained by the limits of the visual or the oral because can you visualize what it what it feels like to fall in love and you know is is sound you know the, the, the constraints of sound so there are things i think that this implies there are things that a book can do that movies can't that games can't now that isn't a you know the book is always better than the movie thing i hate that statement i absolutely loathe it i don't think it's true I think there are lots of instances where the book has proven to be better than the movie. And, uh, and, and it, uh, sorry, that, that the movie has proven to be better than the book. Look at me, my, my Freudian slip. Um, there are all sorts of examples. Uh, the Wizard of Oz is a great example. Um, the movie Blade Runner is a pretty good example, although I think the book that it's based on is quite good. Die Hard! you know, the movie Die Hard. People are like, really? It was based on a book? Yes, as it turns out, it, it was. And apparently it wasn't a bad book, but you don't see it on the bestseller list. You don't see people picking it up. You see them watching the movie. Same thing with The Wizard of Oz. Very few people have read The Wizard of Oz. But a lot of people know about the MGM film. So, slight digression. But there's a sense in which, you know, the w words can do something, can convey concepts in ways that these other forms can't. We can stop reading at any point. That's important, right? That we can just we can just put the book down. Somebody comes up and interrupts us. This happens to me all the time. I don't understand how. I'm reading a book and 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 especially when I'm on vacation, I'll be sitting there and be reading and people come up and it's as though they're liberating me. They think they're liberating me from some some prison. You know, they start talking to me like oh I know I know you just brought that book to pass the time. And it's like, no, I brought the book to read the book. Talking to you is... No. <laughs> well, to some degree, yes. Um, so we can stop reading at any point. We can reread. So if we didn't get a concept, we can flip back. 
we can skip ahead. Ooh, you know, I know lots of people who are like, I get to a point with certain books and I'm just so worried for the characters. I can't, I can't read the rest of the book without going to the end and seeing who lives. And then I can, okay, I, you know, get over it. And, and they're not as angsty. They're not stressed out about it. Uh, we can hold the book in our hands. We can. Oh, and this one, this has got raised print on it, right? There's something nice about that. People love books as objects, just as art objects. I'm looking around as though I have a book right next to me that's beautiful, and I guess I do. Um, I've got this copy of a Dungeons & Dragons book, and it's got this great foil cover. There's this foil print on it. It's shiny, right? Uh, the, uh, the the guidebook for Eberron. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. The book, the illustrations inside are gorgeous, everything like that. But some people just love books. They love the feel of a book. They love the smell of a book. They love the smell of printer's ink on paper. Uh, they, they like old musty smelling paper from books that they got in a used bookstore. Uh, this is all true of me, by the way. But uh, I also happen to love my Kindle. I have a Kindle e-reader and I love it because I can take my, like a whole bookshelf of books with me uh, when I go, you know, like I had to go get the tires changed on my vehicle the other day and I'm going, I'm sit, sitting in a Cal tire and I've got a bookshelf of books with me and COVID friendly because I can spray that puppy down and wipe it off. I can't spray this down. I mean, I could, but it would wreck the book, right? So, um, and, and we can always see how much of the story remains to be read. Even in a Kindle, Kindle says, this is the percentage of the book that you've read so far. So you've got, you know, the, the, the remaining percentage to, to, to the end. So this is what, we, what we're talking about when we're talking about telling. Because it's interesting to me that we study books in, in English literature, but we never really stop to go, well, what is it that we're doing? And how is this distinct from other things? Like, we take in so much of our narrative from visual, uh, like, you know, uh, video games, movies, we, we read books too, but what is it that we're doing when we're reading a book? And I want to, I want us to be thinking about those things as we're doing that. So that's the, uh, the telling mode of engagement. Now, if we were to, you know, to think about, um, our expectations with a book, we, we already might have expectations just based on we're not big fans of the mode of telling. We might not be a big fan of that. And, or you might be me and you look at this cover, this North American cover, and you're like, that's not really working for me. But what, what would change if we picked this book up in the UK, in the United Kingdom, if we were in an airport in London and we located Station Eleven, what would change about our expectations now, interestingly, the cover blurb, the person who quotes on the, they have a quote from the, uh, the, from some famous author or an author who was a buzz author the year before someone, someone that, you know, you look at and you go, Oh, I read their book. And so you think maybe this will be like that book. Um, we've got the same cover blurb. We're going to come back to why in just a little bit, but I just want us to keep thinking about the cover. Cause again, this is the first thing that hits us is just that big image, right? So now instead of yurts and a wall and grass and a starry sky, we have a deer. That I mean, it's the first thing that jumps out to me after the big pink Station Eleven, and it's there's a little scratchy that pink Station Eleven. Um, but uh, then we've got this outline of a deer, and then I realize that the deer is standing in a city. What is the deer standing in? Oh. And now I see that there is foliage, there is greenery, 
It's not green, it's just white, but I can see that, that nature has encroached upon the city. Hmm. This is interesting to me now. I'm, I'm more compelled. So if my colleague Jackie Baker had handed this copy to me, I'd have been like, huh? Not just because of that, it, it kind of looks like the cover of a graphic novel, and I love comics. So, you know, maybe I would be more prone to read the UK version than I would have the North American version. It's an interesting switch in aesthetics, though. But I still don't really know what's going on. Because you'll notice that the, the novel has disappeared. We don't know that it's a novel. I mean, I thought it was a graphic novel, right? And then until I opened it up and realized it wasn't. Although there's a tip-in plate, uh, which is a uh, sort of a card-style uh, page in the UK edition that contains a, a, a bit of comic art. Now, that would have been super intriguing to me. What's this comic art doing in this book? Uh, now I want to read it. Let's take a look at one more cover before we move on. Because expectations, what does, what does the cover produce in us in terms of expectations? That's very telling. This is the Subterranean Press limited edition. It's a hardback of Station Eleven. This is that cover. And I've been using that for the background in the video version of this lecture. Because uh, it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful art. I see what looks like a car or a truck with a covered wagon sort of look to it. It's being pulled by horses. No, no, there's not just one, there's two. Uh, now, we've still got the starry sky from the, the original yurt moment, but I can also see that there, is, there are smashed vehicles as well in the foreground, and that foliage is encroaching, and so it's like it's a, it's like it's a mashup of the, uh, the cover from the UK. And if I was to show you the back cover of this version, you would see that there is again a deer just standing there. So yeah, a little a little bit of both of those elements. Um, but now I have a much better idea of what this book is about. Now I know that this isn't just a novel, but that it's a novel about the end of the world, that the world ends and moves on. Because I can tell from this cover that this is post-apocalyptic. I might have thought it was a Western for just a moment, but then I would have seen the ruined car in the foreground. I would have seen that the horses are pulling uh, gas-powered vehicles. And my immediate conclusion would be, okay, this is about after the end of the world. It's a post-apocalyptic novel. Now, as it turns out, that's not all it is. But at least now I have a greater sense of what's going on. And this along with the deer standing and looking out from the UK cover, at least these covers, tell me something about what's inside the book. Now, none of this is meant to be like, well, and that makes the North American version a piece of crap. That's not at all what I mean. I think the North American version has a very nice cover. And I, I have a theory about why the North American cover looks the way that it does. It has to do with Emily St. John Mandel. Who is Emily St. John Mandel? Well, this was in her first novel, her earlier novels were sort of like literary mysteries. When I say literary mysteries, they weren't like Sherlock Holmes style mysteries, but just they were the sort of mystery novels that someone who likes things to be a bit more serious and sophisticated and stylistic in terms of their prose would be interested in. Now, from other writers that I've met and talked to about their careers, 
they've told me that it's very, very hard once you have been pigeonholed as a thing to break out of that. Like if you come in um, as, a, as a writer of the paranormal romance, you have to keep writing the paranormal romance. And if you want to write some science fiction, you're going to have to write it under a pseudonym. Same thing for, uh, you know, like high fantasy. I had, a, I, I had a, an instructor once who wrote Celtic fantasy in the 90s. And when she wanted to write science fiction, they said, hey, you're going to have to, you're going to have to come up with a pseudonym, a fake name uh, that we can use to build your science fiction imprint. Uh, at one point, Stephen King even made up a pseudonym just to see if he could still get published uh, under a completely different name. And he, he could, but he couldn't sell a lot of books. And then sooner or later, they just let everybody know that Richard Bachman is really Stephen King. And then all of a sudden, those books sold like hotcakes. Um, romance novelists, very, very hard to break out of. And I can't help but think, Maybe Emily St. John Mandel's marketing team, the people at her publishing house, were going like, well, we know what your group of people are expecting, and it sure as heck isn't post-apocalyptic literature. So this cover is a bit of a cheat. It's got that cover that you would expect from what we used to have with things like, uh, you know, the Oprah Book Club or CBC Reads or something like that, that, that they recommend a book to you. And it usually has a really serious type font. Uh, type font. Uh, and that's the funny thing about the UK one is that the type font, again, is it has a little bit bolder. It's a, what we call a sans serif font um, and gives it that more cartoony, that more, uh, more cartoony feel. So I have to I have to wonder about that. Was that was that the reason? Because this last one looks like a science fiction cover. This looks like a post-apocalyptic uh, novels cover. You might be like, well, is it a science fiction book, Doctor Pershan? That's a good question. What genre is this book? What genre is Station Eleven? Um, now it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 2015. That's a science fiction award. Fascinatingly. I haven't found a copy that tells you that on the cover. I have seen covers that are like, this book won this award or that award. I've got an image of a bookmark, a Station Eleven bookmark, um, which includes a quote from the novel, because survival is insufficient. This is going to be one of our themes for the semester, so keep it in your mind. Uh, it was an Indie Next pick. It was a Barnes & Noble Discover pick. It was a Library Staff pick. It was a Books Expo Buzz book. It was the McEwen Book of the Year in 2016-17. Uh, but nowhere do I see anybody going like, it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. That is a serious award to win in science fiction circles. If this was published as a science fiction book in the science fiction ghetto, you could be darn sure they'd have had that loud and clear on the cover somewhere, but we don't see it anywhere on here. And yet it won that award. So I have to ask myself, like, is this a science fiction book? So now, you know, in judging a book by its cover, I want to consider some of its paratexts. Now the cover itself is what we call a paratext. A paratext is sort of the stuff that surrounds the book itself. So that this bookmark is a paratext. Um, to some degree, reviews of a book are paratexts. They are the, the texts that talk about the book, but they aren't really the book. right? Sure enough, these blurbs are on the book, but you don't have to read them to read the book. You don't even have to see the cover to read the book. If you got the audio book, you might never see the cover, and you certainly wouldn't see the blurbs. But we're going to consider the blurbs for just a moment, because sometimes we pick up a book and we go, I don't know what this is, so we start reading the blurbs. What do the blurbs say? Once in a very long while, this is the front uh, of the North American version, 
once in a very long while, a book com becomes a brand new old friend. Oof, that sounds nice. I need a brand new old friend. Uh, a story you never knew you always wanted. That's a, it's a glowing endorsement. Station 11 is that rare find. Absolutely extraordinary. And just those last two words were the only things that got thrown up on the UK version. Absolutely extraordinary. I want to read something absolutely extraordinary. Aaron Morgenstern, author of The Night Circus. Well, what if I don't know what The, uh, the Night Circus is? And what if I don't know who Aaron Morgenstern is? Well, I'll tell you who Aaron Morgenstern is. Uh, Aaron Morgenstern. I don't actually know a lot about Aaron Morgenstern, but I know a little bit about the Night Circus. Night Circus was kind of like Station Eleven in that it was a genre narrative that was taken very seriously and won a bunch of prestigious awards and was critically praised, but it was fantasy. At the end of the day, that book is fantasy. Station Eleven might be science fiction. It won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, after all. So maybe you put Aaron Morgenstern on the front cover of Station Eleven because people who read uh, serious fantasy like the Night Circus might like some serious whatever this is. Uh, so, you know, they go, oh, I like Aaron Morgenstern's Night Circus. I'm going to pick this up. I like, I like that kind of thing, whatever that thing is. Let's take a look at the back, uh, the back of the book. Advanced Praise for Station Eleven. A genuinely unsettling dystopian novel. Ooh, I like dystopian novels. That also allows for moments of great tenderness. Emily St. John Mandel conjures indelible visuals, and her writing is pure elegance. All right. Well, a genuinely unsettling dystopian novel. What's a dystopian novel? Like I've, you know, just and, and who is who's who's telling me that this is a dystopian novel? Patrick Dewitt, author of the Sisters Brothers. Well, the reason I didn't want to teach Station Eleven initially was because I had already worked out a course like this around uh, Patrick Dewitt's Sisters Brothers, which is a western. And again, westerns have their own ghettos, but you don't find the Sisters Brothers in the ghetto. You find Sisters Brothers in fiction. You find Sisters Brothers in literature. You find it in a section that has this great big catch-all where, no matter what it is that you're writing, so long as you have a bit of what DeWitt's talking about here, which is the indelible visuals and her writing is pure excellent elegance, uh, if you have that upper level of sophistication and style, sometimes you find yourself over there instead of the ghetto. So here is another author, like Aaron Morgenstern, whose work should have been over in the ghetto, but wasn't. For some reason, so you find it in the fiction section, find it in the literature section. It's some elevated version of this. It's some different version of this. What? Why is this not in the ghetto? Uh, I want us to keep thinking about these things, thinking about genre. Um, but what's a dystopian work? And immediately we might think, oh, well, I know dystopian because I know Hunger Games and Hunger Games is dystopian. Uh, that is a popular, that's, that, that, the books and the films popularize the idea of the dystopia. But we might get the wrong idea about what dystopia is based upon a popular concept of it. So we'd want to go check that up. What is a dystopia? Um, it is an imagined, usually future, society that is terrible. Uh, you may have heard the Trump presidency referred to as a dystopia. Or people saying like, hey, uh, now we're living in the world of 1984 or you know, whatever dystopian work they wanted to reference. So... Patrick DeWitt is telling me that this book contains a society that has gone terribly. And we should know that a dystopian novel, that that's, that's probably going to be its focus. Station Eleven, this is now Emma Straub, author of The Vacationers. 
which doesn't fit into the paradigm that we've already been looking at. Station Eleven is the kind of book that speaks to dozens of the readers in me. I love this blurb, by the way, because this one actually gives us a really good sense of everything that's going to be in this book. Somewhat madcap as a result. Uh, the Hollywood Devotee, the comic book fan, oh, okay, like that tip-in plate. The cult junkie, what do you mean by the cult junkie? Well, people who are interested in, like, you know, um, uh, doomsday cults and things like that. The love lover, <gasps> there's romance? The disaster tourist. So people who like to watch the, the rubberneckers as they go by the, the train wreck or the car uh, pile up, whatever it might be. It is a brilliant novel, and Emily St. John Mandel is astonishing. Now, what's interesting to me is that in none of those categories does Emma Straub say what the Kirkus Reviews says in the very last blurb on the back of the North American copy, which is that this is an ambitious take on a post-apocalyptic world where some strive to preserve art, culture, and kindness. I need both Emma Straub and the Kirkus Reviews. By the way, I'm going to give you a spoiler. Patrick DeWitt is wrong. I think he's wrong anyway. You, you might want to say, no, Dr. Pichon, I actually think uh, Patrick DeWitt was right. So but we read the blurb and it says dystopian. It says all this stuff about these different things. Hollywood devotee, the comic book fan, the cult junkie, the love lover, the disaster tourist. I have heard it described as a thriller. Um, seen people use the words apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic. But there's also this aspect of the love lover. And so there's maybe there's romance in here. Um, but then this post-apocalyptic world where some strive to preserve art, culture, and kindness. So there's a ton of things it seems that this book has going on. Now, I'm genuinely interested. So, judging a book by its cover isn't a bad idea. We actually do want to get in there and we want to take a look at what a book is doing. Now, I want to grab one of these genres and talk about it for the last little bit of uh, today's uh, talk, today's lecture. The apocalyptic genre. What is the apocalyptic genre? Well, very simply put, it's uh, the genre about the end of the world. And... It is not a recent genre, although the way in which we utilize it today is distinct from its ancient forms. But, uh, as I told you earlier, I sometimes teach ancient literature in our course, Comparative Literature, here at McEwen, um, which is world literature. And uh, I'll tell you why I teach it in just a moment, but I've got this image up on the uh, slide of uh, Simon Bisley, who's a... a science fiction fantasy horror artist who t he took a, he, he made a book called uh, Simon Bisley the Bible and it's uh, his take on various scenes from the Bible and here we have a horrifying vision of the story of Noah's Ark absolutely apocalyptic the world is certainly ending there are people on the rocks who are crying out and they're all going to die and there's the boat over on the side and What's fascinating to me about Noah's Ark is that it's one of those stories that people don't ever have to have actually come into contact with, but they probably know something about it. Maybe because they played with a Noah's Ark playset when they were a kid. There's a Playmobil Noah's Ark playset. There's all sorts of Noah's Ark toys, and you pair all the animals up two by two. Um, but if you don't know the story of Noah's Ark, it's the story of, uh, of, of God deciding that he's going to destroy the world with a massive flood. And one person gets picked because he's good, he's righteous, and he and his family get to survive. And so they build a, an escape vessel, the Ark, 
and uh, and everybody else dies. The, the whole world perishes. Animals, the, uh, every species of animal is brought on board this uh, this voyage of salvation, and uh, and then you know the waters recede, and there is a post-apocalyptic part of the narrative. So we've been talking about the end of the world pretty much since we could write a story down. One of the earliest instances of the story of, of the flood is found in what is roundly considered by consensus to be the oldest piece of written literature that we have, uh, the story of Gilgamesh. This is ancient Babylonian literature, and it was preserved on clay tablets, uh, and uh, and and it, there was a, quite a bit of excitement when it was discovered because it was lost for like nearly 2,000 years, uh, or really, yeah, close to 2,000 years. Um, and uh, when it was discovered, there was this flood narrative found inside, which the archaeologists at the time thought corroborated the flood narrative from the Bible, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. But the uh, the flood narrative here is pretty much exactly the story of Noah, except that instead of this really righteous guy named Noah, uh, the gods speak to um, a guy named Utnapishtim. Uh, and there are other um, names for Utnapishtim and other versions of this story. But... Um, and, 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 and the gods, it's not even all the gods who do it. There's like one god who's like, let's kill them all. They're too noisy. And, and that's really his reason. He's just like, you damn kids, get off my lawn. Um, and he decides to wipe out mankind. And one of the gods is like, this is a screwed up idea. And so she sneaks up to where Utnapishtim is hanging out by some grass. And she's like in the, in the reeds. And she's like, hey, Utnapishtim. And he's like, who's speaking to me? Just these reeds over by the reed wall. Um, and so gets the message out, build, build the boat. Utnapishtim's a king. And so he just gets people to do it for him. Uh, they take a lot more people with them. But it's the same story. You know, the world is going to be destroyed by the gods. And then some people get on a boat and they survive. And that's the oldest version of it. And, and the, that is the oldest narrative we have. There may be earlier narratives that have been lost to the vagaries of time, but Gilgamesh is the oldest one we have. And then there are other versions of this story that we find in various sacred texts, like the Christian Bible. And uh, the Christian Bible takes that, by the way, borrows it um, from the Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, which is sometimes called the Hebrew Bible, um, which, you know, if you know the book of Genesis from the Bible, that was originally a Hebrew book. Um, and there are little differences in how that gets retold later in the Christian Bible. Like when the story of Noah gets visited again uh, in some words of Jesus, the narrative's changed a little bit. It's not quite the same story that uh, that gets told in Genesis. And then it changes again when we find it in the Quran. There's these little nuanced differences between the way that this story is being told over and over again. And today we may know this narrative through children's books like Goodnight Art. Ark, or this book Jan Brett's on Noah's Ark. There's a ton of Noah's Ark books. Somebody's always writing a new version of, of Noah's Ark. And it's fun because you can, when you read these to kids, you can be like, what's this? It's zebra, right? And so you can point out all the animals and say, well, what's this one? That's a cow, right? You know, whoever's getting on the ark. These are elephants. What does an elephant say? Um, and then we've got Russell Crowe in Darren Aronofsky's version of 
the story called Noah. And you can tell that there is a huge amount of difference between Goodnight Ark and Noah. Noah's just straight up got apocalyptic imagery on that poster, so we know this movie, as the, as the tagline says, the end of the world is just the beginning. Ooh, that sounds really intense. That doesn't sound like Goodnight Ark. What are, we, what are we looking at here? We're looking at the difference between story versus narrative. And we're going to be using these terms over and over again, this term, so I want to get them nailed down very early on. What's the difference between story and narrative? And just so you know, this is not me going, this is actually how these words are defined. And if you're at a party and someone misuses them in the way that I'm using them in this course, please take them to task. No, don't do that. It's gauche. It's really lame. Don't do that to your friends. They will stop being your friends. You know, so if someone's like, I, I read a story, and that you'd be like, no, that's a narrative. Um, don't do that. But we're doing this to to distinguish uh, some terms that are going to help us to approach Station Eleven and apocalyptic narratives. Uh, story versus narrative. So on the one hand, we have story, which is an event or series of events. God ends the world with a flood. One man and his family survive in a boat. That's the story. We could even say plot, but we're going to use the term story. Story of Noah's Ark. If I ask if I go into a Sunday school room or if I go to a synagogue and I ask kids, hey, what's the story of Noah's Ark? They can tell me. But when they tell me, each of them is crafting a distinct narrative. A narrative is a representation of an event or a series of events. So the story is this nebulous thing that exists, an event or series of events that many of us can know. And so we know the story. We could even say it's, it's like if, if, you know, if you're in a car accident and the police have to get everyone to write up reports, the story is what happened. The narratives will be each person's individual report. So a narrative is a representation of an event or a series of events. So Goodnight Ark is a narrative of the story of Noah's Ark. Darren Aronofsky's Noah is a narrative of the story of Noah's Ark. So the story is this nebulous thing that exists and we have all sorts of stories. Little Red Riding Hood is a story and we turn it into specific representations, specific narratives. So something that I want you to think about as we end today, as we go into this next week, I want you to watch the movie Contagion. It's on Netflix, so you should have no trouble accessing it. For my students, you have it on e-reserve, but I recommend watching it on Netflix if you can, because the quality will be better. Um, but I want you to look at the first section of Station Eleven. So for those of you who are listening to the podcast out there who aren't my students, pick it up. Get a copy of Station Eleven. Read the first section, the first chapter, we might call it, which is called The Theater. Watch Contagion now. Once you've done those two things, I want you to compare and contrast the way Contagion and Station Eleven are telling the same story. Both of these narr narr narratives, remember the narrative is the specific. Station Eleven is a narrative. Contagion is a narrative. They both tell a story. And I think they tell the same story in the theater. But they tell it in different ways. What story are they both telling? Like, what would you label the story that they're both telling? What are the differences between the narratives? How does Station Eleven tell whatever this story is differently than Contagion does? And finally, what emotional effect do you think each author slash creator wished to produce? 
because we want to look into the emotional effect of story on us as we move into this semester of not only living through the apocalypse, right? Here we are in the midst of a pandemic and me, crazy psycho that I am, have assigned a narrative that's about that very thing. But even there, we can step back and say, is this what I'm experiencing? Or is my personal narrative distinct from this fictional one? Look forward to seeing you again soon. We're going to be, as I say, uh, at that point, talking about Station Eleven, Contagion, and the opening moments of Stephen King's The Stand.